Welcome to Skim This. And the bill, as amended, is passed. The Inflation Reduction Act is making its way to President Biden's desk. And it's jam-packed with new policies to tackle climate change, healthcare, taxes, and more. We'll skim how this bill will affect you and whether it'll actually reduce inflation. And while Democrats celebrated, Republicans were shook up by the other big story from the week, the FBI's raid on former President Donald Trump's home. We'll break down the investigation and what it could mean for a Trump presidential rerun in 2024. We've also got the week's other big headlines, including Facebook in some hot water over an abortion case and saying goodbye to the goat of tennis, Serena Williams. And to wrap things up, we'll take a look at the new social media app that's encouraging users to be real. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. We're starting off with the one story that was basically everywhere this week. On Monday, the FBI raided former President Donald Trump's home at the Mar-a-Lago Resort in Florida, marking the first time federal law enforcement has ever searched a former president's home. And no surprise here, that move has given us a lot to talk about. So to make things simple, we're going to break down what we know so far by answering five questions with the help of Elena Treen, Axios's congressional reporter. Our first question is, what exactly was the FBI looking for? And the answer is that the FBI was reportedly searching for classified documents that Trump took with him as he was leaving the White House. There was a number of documents that the Justice Department could not find after he left office. We don't know exactly what they are, but we do know that there are things that could relate to national security and, again, are classified documents that the government wants to protect and is also afraid of them being declassified. Let's backtrack a little bit. After his presidency, Donald Trump brought 15 boxes of documents to his home, and delayed handing them over to the National Archives and Records Administration until January of this year. After the NARA went through those boxes and discovered classified information, they informed the Justice Department, and that all prompted an investigation about how that could have happened in the first place and if there were more documents in the wrong hands. And the reason we even care in the first place is because failing to give up documents of official presidential business is against the law. Specifically, the Presidential Records Act of 1978, which requires all documents that contain official business be turned over to the archives for preservation. Trump maintains that his team followed routine procedure with the NARA and also called the search not necessary or appropriate. And that brings us to our second question. Why did the FBI do this? And what investigation is this part of anyways? In case you missed it, Trump is fighting a lot of different legal battles right now. He's involved in a civil case in New York that's focused on his business dealings, which he just refused to testify in, a criminal probe about election interference in Georgia, and the January 6th committee's special investigation, which could launch a criminal probe into Trump and his actions that day. 
But this search was connected to another investigation that's focused on how the Trump administration handled and allegedly mishandled official government documents. That investigation was launched back in May when federal prosecutors asked a grand jury to look into whether Trump mishandled White House records. But we should point out, while this search was apparently a document hunt, the FBI and the Justice Department have yet to confirm the official reason behind the search. Regardless of what investigation this search is related to, in order for federal investigators to even conduct a raid, there had to be probable cause that a crime was actually committed here. And today in a press conference, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that he personally approved the decision to seek a search warrant of Trump's home. The department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means as an alternative to a search and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. In the same press conference, Garland also said that the DOJ has filed a motion to unseal that warrant. As for any other details on the investigation, Garland was tight-lipped. And that leads us to our third question. How big of a deal is this? According to Treen, the short answer is, it's a big deal. But we don't have all the facts yet about what the FBI was investigating and what they found. And until we do, we're left with a politically explosive action by the FBI and not a lot of answers. The Department of Justice knows how politically energizing this issue would be. And so they really think that there is evidence in these documents that warranted such a search by the FBI. And the Justice Department is very very concerned about appearing political at all. And I think that as they continue to work through this investigation, they want to make sure that they have everything in line before going public with it. So there's a lot riding on what's happening. And whether or not the political situation was as crazed as it is now in the wake of that raid, it's a really important and risky move, I guess, by the Justice Department to do this. They really do have to have, I think, the evidence to back it up. And if they don't, the consequences for them could be very damaging. Speaking of consequences for the DOJ, let's get to our fourth question. How are people reacting? Republicans have joined in an uproar about it. And some people are demanding briefings from Attorney General Merrick Garland, as well as FBI Director Christopher Wray demanding they come in, brief Congress on the purpose of this raid, why there was this search, and why they went so far as to do this when Trump wasn't there, he wasn't at Mar-a-Lago, and why not go to him directly? And on the other side of the aisle, some Democrats celebrated, while others expressed concern about the potential political backlash, especially since this search seems to have ignited Trump's base and GOP voters. Trump claims the Department of Justice's actions are politically motivated and designed to prevent him from running. But we've really seen Trump get the best boost ahead of 2024 that he's seen yet, thanks to this search. And we've seen that you know people like Senator Lindsey Graham spoke with him and said he's more convinced than ever after the raid that Trump will run again. And so it's really actually had the inadvertent effect of propelling Donald Trump even further into announcing his candidacy for 2024. Let's get to our last question. What happens next? Basically, now we wait for what the DOJ finds or doesn't find. And depending on what comes out of that investigation, 
that could have a big blast radius, potentially impacting the 2024 presidential race. Because in one scenario, if Trump is found to have mishandled documents, that's technically a federal crime. And P.S., Trump himself actually upped the penalty about messing with official records from a misdemeanor to a felony while he was in office. If the Justice Department decides to criminally prosecute him, that could disqualify him from running. And that's all going to depend on what they find. But it definitely could. And that, that goes as well if the Justice Department's investigation into the events leading up to, on, and in the aftermath of January 6th prove that he engaged in any criminal misconduct or activity that could also disqualify him. But let's slow our roll for a second. There are a lot of potential outcomes here. And so far, the former president hasn't been charged with committing a federal crime. But as we continue to watch the political fallout and get updates on the DOJ's investigation, we'll be sure to keep you posted. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we're looking at inflation. And we don't want to jinx it, but things are kind of looking better. On Wednesday, we got the inflation rate for the month of July. And drumroll, the rate was 8.5%. That's down from 9.1% in June which was the highest inflation rate we've seen in four decades. That slight decrease is giving some economists hope that the worst might be over. And maybe you've even noticed inflation cooling off in your own life, like at the pump. Gas prices went down 7.7% from the prior month. And for the last 58 days straight, prices for gas have consistently declined. In fact, the national average is clocking in at just under $4 a gallon now, for the first time in months. But not all prices were on the decline. Food costs and housing costs are still on the rise. And even though it seems like we're not out of the woods yet, Wall Street took the news as a clear W. On Wednesday, stocks closed at a three-month high, with the Dow jumping more than 500 points. For our next headline, we're taking a look at how Meta, aka Facebook, is now caught up in the conversation over abortion. This week, we learned that back in April, before Roe v. Wade was overturned, a then 17-year-old girl in Nebraska took abortion pills at about 23 weeks of pregnancy. That's just over the 20 weeks that Nebraska allows. And in June, local police served Facebook with a search warrant to access private messages between the girl and her mother, in which they discussed terminating her pregnancy. Facebook handed them over, and the messages serve as the key evidence for police, who charged the mother and daughter with crimes including performing an abortion and concealing a dead human body, charges that they both pleaded not guilty to. We should note, A spokesperson from Meta says the warrant it received didn't mention abortion. But still, this case is raising major questions about how big tech might use our data against us when it comes to seeking abortion care. 
Since Roe was overturned in June, people have been concerned about whether their data from a period tracking app or a Google search could end up in police hands. And what happened in Nebraska only heightens those fears, as more cases like this are expected in a post-Roe America. And for our final headline, we turn now to the end of an era. Tennis great Serena Williams says she is evolving away from the sport she has redefined for the last 23 years. The GOAT is saying goodbye to tennis. This week, in a first-person essay in Vogue magazine, Serena Williams announced she was planning to hang up her racket after the U.S. Open tournament that starts later this month. It's hard to overstate what an impact Williams had on the tennis world and the sports world more largely. Not only was she a 23-time Grand Slam winner, she and her sister transformed the sport and changed the game for female athletes of color. In her essay, Williams said she's not a fan of the word retirement and calls her next step in her career her evolution. She also acknowledged women have to make complicated career choices, writing, if I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. Maybe I'd be more of a Tom Brady if I had that opportunity. If you want to see Williams play, likely for the last time, the U.S. Open starts on August 29th. Over the weekend, Senate Democrats passed a long-awaited $740 billion spending bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. And this was a long time coming. For more than a year, Dems have been trying to push through some historic reforms. Remember Build Back Better? Now, they've finally passed a smaller version of their most ambitious plan. The House is expected to pass the Inflation Reduction Act by the end of the week, and then it heads to President Biden's desk. To learn more about how this bill will affect you, and whether it'll actually reduce inflation, we called up Lisa Desjardins the congressional correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Lisa, good to have you on the show. I first want to start with what we're in the business of doing here at The Skim, which is skimming things. And it's hard to kind of reduce the Inflation Reduction Act down to a few quick bullet points. But what is it and how much of a victory is this for Democrats right now? This is a big win Democrats wanted an enormous win. So this is a smaller win than what they had hoped for, but it still is incredibly significant. The title doesn't help things in a way. Inflation Reduction Act doesn't really say who is getting what out of this bill. I think of it as actually, we're nicknaming it the CHAT Act, Climate, Health, and Taxes. Those are the main three components in this bill. That's super helpful to think about that acronym. And I want to get into each of those Let's start with healthcare. Can you explain to me how this bill will impact certain drug prices and what Americans will specifically benefit? The biggest effect here is on Medicare. So that's mostly Americans 65 years old and older. But here's the thing. Medicare makes up a huge portion of the prescription drug market. In 2017, it made up 40% of the prescription drug market. 
So what Democrats are hoping is that when prices come down from negotiations with Medicare, that pharmaceutical companies will bring their prices down across the board. Other people disagree and say, no, what could actually happen is that prices could go up for other people to try and make up the difference. It is a real unknown what's going to happen for people outside of Medicare. But think of this as a huge savings for all of your relatives who are older. They will get some help. I think in the bill, it says the government will have the ability to negotiate the prices of around 10 drugs. And this goes into effect in a few years. Is that right? That's right. The government will have the ability to negotiate 10 drugs to start. And then eventually down the road, it will be 20 drugs. Now, some of these are among the most high cost drugs that the government deals with, high cost categories of drugs. It really does remain to be seen if these first 10 drugs rolling out in a couple of years from now, how much of a difference that makes in the market overall. But Democrats really felt like we have to get this started. We have to start somewhere. Let's get this rolling. And you mentioned some of the pushback that these provisions have gotten from the pharmaceutical industry. What are they saying? I mean, prescription drug pricing is about as clear as a murky swamp in Florida. You know, there's, it's a very, very tricky world. The drug companies say, if you cut our prices, we're not going to have the millions and millions of dollars it takes to try and find the new breakthroughs in other drugs. To this, Democrats say, well, wait a minute, we actually are going to allow you to raise prices on new drugs over the rate of inflation. So we're going to give you more leeway on new drugs. But drugs that are already in the system, no, you've got to keep those price increases in Medicare to the rate of inflation. This bill also will save some people money on their general health insurance costs, specifically people who receive aid for the Affordable Care Act. Is that right? There are large subsidies from the Affordable Care Act that were in place when it began, and those expanded during the pandemic to help more low-income people, low and kind of mid, more middle-income people to some extent. We've seen millions of people get, I think it's something like 3 million people and more, get health insurance because of these expanded Affordable Care Act credits. Those were supposed to end at the end of the year. This bill extends those. That's a huge difference for millions of Americans as well. So we've hit the H in your acronym. I want to get into the C and talk about climate and this bill being the U.S.'s largest investment on climate change ever. What specifically is included here that's giving people hope about the U.S.'s fight against a warming climate? You know, the way I think of what Democrats wanted to do with climate is they wanted a bunch of sticks, regulations that would force industry to cut carbon output. They didn't get any of those. Those were dropped from the bill in negotiations. They did get a bunch of carrots, though, things that would encourage industry and individuals, you and I, everyone listening, to try and be more efficient, to install solar panels, to buy electric vehicles. So it is a humongous amount of investment in encouraging people to just be more energy conscious, to be more efficient, to stop using fossil fuels. At the same time, there are provisions in this too that would increase some drilling. Some offshore drilling and some leases on federal lands would expand. It was a trade-off. There is a little bit more drilling in here. There are a lot more tax credits for every other kind of renewable fuel. What tax breaks can everyday people like us specifically get as a result of this bill? 
Uh, I'm excited to get into this because this is like where it actually meets the road and literally. So at the top of the list, electric vehicle tax credits, there is a huge amount of money in here for people to buy electric vehicles. You can get $7,500 in a tax credit to buy a new electric vehicle. Starting next year, that money comes off right at the top at the dealership. You can also get $4,000 to buy a used electric vehicle as a tax credit. Now, you can't be a very wealthy person. They have an income cap on that. It's $150,000 for individuals. If you make less than that, this tax credit is all yours. And you can't buy a luxury EV. It has to be something like a sedan, $55,000 or less, which to me is still a really good car. So this is something that they're hoping is not just a change in individuals' lives, but is a cultural change, that this moves the entire car industry, how Americans buy cars, that we really move off of gasoline in general. It remains to be seen if there are enough cars to meet demand in the near term. So get on the wait list now if you know you're interested. There's also a lot in here for homeowners. There are tax credits for putting solar panels on your roof. All of this is trying to create an influx of renewable fuel and renewable electricity from the start in manufacturing all the way into your life. And let's talk about the T in chat. Taxes. What's changing, I guess, is the question. The biggest change on taxes in this is that Democrats are trying to force large corporations to all pay a minimum tax, 15% tax. It actually is a lot more than many of these companies make. They all have ways, very high-powered, smart accountants who help them get to a point where companies are paying little to no taxes. So this 15% corporate minimum tax is a very big deal. Now, the question is, which companies can get around that still? There is also in here provision that it must be a billion dollars or more the corporation makes to pay that minimum tax. We touched on this at the beginning, but the big question is, What does the Inflation Reduction Act do or not do to reduce inflation? And I'm curious what expert analysis and and your reporting has found on that question. Almost universally, experts, nonpartisan experts say this does not do much for inflation in the near term. In the long term, yeah, maybe it will do some things. We'll have to see. It shifts away dependence on fossil fuels. That could be good on energy prices, on the drug pricing. It might bring down drug prices in a larger way, but it's not clear how or when that would happen. All of these think tanks, all of these math nerds who have looked at this bill have found, including the Congressional Budget Office, they just don't think there's much of an inflation effect in the next year or two. And Lisa, last question for you. How are you thinking about the legacy or the widespread impact of this bill? You know, it's funny. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer is saying, you know, this is the one of the biggest bills to be passed in decades. I don't know. That's a pretty big statement. I do think that this is coming at a critical moment, especially on climate. And I think this is a very significant step for the United States to make. It doesn't necessarily get us to where we need to keep the climate at this sort of temperature zone that we want, but it is a huge step that gets us closer. Lisa, thank you so much. You're welcome.
Just when you thought social media couldn't take up any more of our already short attention spans. Oh my God, wait, Mika, it's time to be real. A new platform has entered the chat. Like this? Yeah, like this. Oh my God, there's a porta potty behind you. I think we look good. <laughs> That's our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin, taking her be real photo for the day. As for why she's taking it in front of a porta potty, well, that's because Be Real isn't like other girls, or rather, other social media platforms. The idea is you're just taking a photo of whatever you're doing in the moment, and you can't try to make yourself look any better than you are. Sarah Todd is a senior reporter at Quartz who's gone down the Be Real rabbit hole. On Be Real, you can only post one time a day. The app takes a photo from the front camera and the back camera, and that's it. And P.S. You don't get to choose when you post. Rather, Be Real chooses for you and all your friends. You suddenly get a notification, and the two minute countdown is on to take your selfie and your photo, no filters or edits allowed. The average Be Real feed might include a photo of a stale coffee cup, or your friend's work desk, or someone's view from their couch as they watch trashy TV. And no shade, that's literally my favorite hobby. But the point is to actually be real. And you do that by taking photos that one might say aren't very Instagram worthy. What I was most struck by as a user on Be Real is how boring the pictures are, but not in a bad way. I'm somebody who's very susceptible to FOMO. And because the photos that everyone is posting are so mundane, there's not really any desire to follow a large group of people or people you don't know because you would just be seeing really boring stuff. So that means that you also probably don't have a very long feed to scroll through. You know, you can get to the bottom of your feed pretty quickly. In addition to short feeds and aesthetically unpleasing photos, Be Real is kind of doing the opposite of what Instagram and TikTok are trying to do. Those apps are focused on promoting videos and content from people you don't know, usually trying to sell you stuff you don't need. In fact, Instagram even said recently that it was trying to make itself more like TikTok and push content from strangers onto your feed. So Be Real is sort of like an outlier in a sea of social media sameness. There's still overwhelmingly this idea that Instagram is a place that's overrun by influencers and brands and lots of people who are trying to sell you something. Be Real is very much positioning itself as an ad-free space. Users are also not allowed to make ads of their own. So it's going really out of its way to be sort of non-commercial. People seem to be loving the app's approach. Be Real is currently the number one free app in the Apple App Store. And this year alone, more than 7 million people have downloaded the app. So why is it blowing up right now? The early adopters were college students, so it's got that Gen Z audience on lock. I think that it has to do with Gen Z's sort of rejection of some of the social media expectations that they grew up with and came of age with. 
there's this feeling of disillusionment with having to perform all the time with the idea of having to look a certain way. And I think Be Real really taps into that underlying desire for not just authenticity, but for spontaneity, too. Basically, Be Real is trying to put the social back in social media, which is kind of how all these platforms started. TBT to the early days of Facebook or MySpace, when we were all about writing posts on our crush's wall, uploading countless photos from a night out with our digital camera pics, and keeping in touch with our camp friends via Messenger. And we might cringe at these things now, but those were the days when we actually used social networks to keep up with people we knew. And whether you're Gen Z, millennial, or another generation, that's something we all miss about being online. We don't want to pretend that our lives are better than they are because the jig is up. We all know that everybody's lives have tough times. <laughs> and so I think that what we're seeing is that there is a real thirst for those connections that involve being close to people by sharing the everyday parts of our lives. Still, while Be Real is trying to be the antidote to the mindless feed scrolling on other platforms, it's not without its own flaws. When you post on Be Real, you're sort of like performing a more casual version of yourself. It's not to say that that's more real than going out with your friends to a fancy dinner. Like you really did do that. That is also a part of your day. So I think that it's important to mention that it's not necessarily showing a more authentic version of your life, but it is showing a different version of your life. We should also point out, Be Real isn't as anti-advertising as it wants you to believe. Brands like Chipotle and PacSun have started their own accounts on the app. And while they're not technically putting out ads on the platform, that's already making some people worry about whether Be Real could sell out and become Instagram or TikTok 2.0. But for now, it seems like people are enjoying this unfiltered version of social media with no editing, no fancy vacations, and the element of surprise. Okay, I've got to go take my B-reel now. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. <laughs>